Gentlemen, the Civil War is a time period in our history that we often like to look at with shame. But it's really important to know that there were some very manly men in that time frame. And we've got an amazing guest, historian and author Chris Makowski. In a culture that scoffs at honor, you can rise up to lead and to shine. It's time to be the best man that you can be. This is the Manlyhood Mancast. Here's your host, Josh Hatcher. Gentlemen, welcome to the Manlyhood Mancast. I'm your host, Josh Hatcher. I am glad that you are with us today. Listen, we've got something we want to talk to you about. Our friends at Hemp Mafia have created this Manlyhood's Apothecary Dirty Beard Oil. It's got CBD in it. It's got peppermint. It's got lemon. It's got uh, cinnamon. Did I say cinnamon? Yeah, it's got that in it, which some of these oils have antibacterial properties, so it actually does make your beard clean, make your beard smell amazing, and it's also good, promotes hair growth. It's good for your follicles, keeps your beard shiny. Your ladies will love your beard, and they'll quit complaining about it being all prickly if you use this beard oil. We've got a limited run of it, so if this sells well, if you guys like it, if you buy it, we're going to get more. So if you want it, go to manlyhood.com slash store, and you can get it there. Also, guys, our Arrows and Iron Brotherhood will be launching soon. We're still working on all those details. If you want to get plugged into a place where you can level up as a man, where you can become a better husband, a better father, a better leader, a better citizen, a better man, this is where it's going to happen. We've got a variety of levels there, so pretty much any budget, you should be able to be a part of this. What you're going to get out of it is you're going to learn uh, how to set goals, how to turn those goals into a plan. You'll have some accountability and some coaching to help make sure you can accomplish that plan. You're also going to get access to some amazing courses uh, that we've created here at Manlyhood and the eBooks that we've written that'll all be available to you uh, within this Arrows and Iron Brotherhood. If this is something you want to know about, you want to get plugged in, go to manlyhood.com slash brotherhood. Today's interview with Chris Mikowski is phenomenal. Chris is a great guy. I've known him for quite a while. And he is a Civil War expert and author, amongst many other things and many other hats that he's worn over the years. I know him uh, from my days in radio. We worked together at a radio station. Actually, I think I was coming in just as he was leaving. Uh, but he would come back to the station and he would read The Grinch <laughs> every Christmas. Um, but he's a phenomenal guy, and this interview is is good stuff. So, without further ado... Chris Mikowski. Chris, it is great to have you on the Manlyhood Mancast, brother. I'm glad to be able to have this conversation with you today. It's awesome to see you. It is great to be here, and I feel especially manly because of it. So that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, when I, when I saw your invitation, it said Manly Mancast with Chris Mikowski. I felt so manly by the sounds yeah. of that. Yeah, testosterone starts surging, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. You've got a good one here. Yeah. Well, it's been a really cool experience to be able to have the podcast and talk to all kinds of people and some I agree with, some I don't and um, get into all kinds of topics and especially as they relate to to masculinity and manhood. I think a lot of guys kind of are craving what that means right now. And, and you know, it's well, been and, a pretty and, cool experience. Yeah. You know, and there are so many different versions of what manhood is and what manliness is and uh, I think probably at the top of that list is that most manly men don't think that they should talk about being manly men. And yet, as you say, like so many people crave the actual opportunity to do that, which I think is fantastic that you've uh, got the podcast for them. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it, I think that's an issue because a lot of guys are like, uh, I'd be surprised how many men don't see themselves that way. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and I get it. I think our culture has some, some, uh, problems and deficits that have have made men feel bad for being men yes yeah and or told men that they're not man enough when sometimes they are you know yeah yeah right right you know or man up you know as though 
like you know that's supposed to be a particular something that's not so i remember like back in the days when you started on facebook and there were like 12 people in your facebook group and you invited me and i was like this would be awesome you know and it just it's been so cool to see you grow your brand and your presence and your mission and you know i just want to take a moment to just say well done to you for all you have done in pursuit of this manliness project thanks man i really appreciate that and uh same to you because you know we were i think our first kind of encounter was years ago in radio uh you worked for the radio station and i years later I took over your position i think you were teaching uh, at St. Bonas at the time. And, um, and now you're kind of pursuing your dream and getting to live that out. So tell me a little bit about that. What is it that you do? Well, you know, it's fantastic uh, because I can literally say I'm living the dream. When I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and be a writer. You know, I just loved telling stories. I drew my own comic books and I wrote my own short stories. And, you know, I really love sciencey fiction, adventure sorts of stuff. And um, it's funny because it that was so nerdy when I was a kid. And today, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like comic books are a huge business. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I thought like, I want to grow up and, and be a writer. And, at some point, I'm not sure when it was, like I woke up one day and I'm like, holy cow, like I'm a writer. Wow, how'd that happen? And um, and I get to do it every day. And I think one of the, the central parts of it for me now is to help other people who want to get there, get there too. Um, because I'm blessed to be able to live my dream. And if I can help other people do that too, um, you know, I'm all in on that. Awesome. Awesome. So I see uh, there is a book that you've written. Is there one book or a couple books? What's what's that? Uh, I think the last I had to count them up this past semester. So between the books I've written, co-written, and edited, um, I think I'm at 24. That's awesome. That's so, awesome. And do you have a particular area that you like to write about? I do. I tend to write about Civil War history these days. Um, you know, pretty pretty exclusively, and it's kind of by happenstance um, because once upon a time I was doing a lot of different sorts of writing, some nature writing and travel writing, and um, and civil war writing is just sort of the aspect of it that took off. I mean, I was playwriting too. I, you know, people in our hometown of Bradford, Pennsylvania, remember in the days when I was uh, doing plays for Bradford Little Theater and only in community theater um, that I had written. And uh, it's just the civil war stuff happened to take off. And so that's where I have since focused my energies. And, um, you know, there's always stuff to write about with the civil war. And, and it's funny because people will be like, what, what more is there to say? It's 160 years old. What more is there to say? And there are so many things you can write about. That's what I love about the Civil War because it's a, it's like America's most important story, and it's filled with all sorts of fascinating smaller stories. Uh, so there's always reason and, and worthwhileness to go back to that. Well, I mean, people still dress up in blue and gray and go out in fields and recreate this because it's that passionate for people that it still, you know, it still holds a cultural significance for a lot of people. Yeah. And there are a lot of different ways that people try to interact with that history. As you said, they, they, they like to, uh, you know, still a, a robust reenacting community. Um, people like to go to historic sites. People like to visit battlefields. For me, that's a, a key thing is I'm, I'm big into battlefield preservation so that we've got these battlefields as resources. We can go and walk the ground and be in touch with the history and walk in the footsteps of the people who were there. Uh, people engage in it through books, through pop culture, like movies and music. And, you know, so there are just so many ways into our history. And to me, it's pretty exciting to kind of stand at that intersection and, and watch people discover it for the first time even though you know the civil war history is, is 160 years old people are coming to it all the time brand new so one of the features that we're going to be featuring this season in the podcast is called testicular fortitude <laughs> and so we do um you know once a month we highlight somebody throughout history that uh emphasized that kind of maybe embodied what it meant to be a man. And so, you know, we've got Abraham Lincoln and we've got uh, John Wesley Powell, who was the one armed man who uh, rafted down the Colorado river, you know, and stories like that to just embody that, that masculine spirit. And I imagine that there's a lot of that kind of hanging out in the civil war as well. Uh, you could probably pick any story of a medal of honor recipient and hold that up as a model of, 
you know, manliness. Um, although nobody's like, I'm going to run out in that field and, and do this so I can win me a medal of honor. Like nobody is thinking that at the time. It's like my best buddy just had his leg shot off. He's trapped in that field. The enemy's coming. I've got to go out there and save his life, even though I'm going to put my own life at risk. Or um, another one, you know, like a flag bearer who's carrying a flag and, and they don't get to shoot back. And everyone is literally shooting at him because flags were how, People communicated on a battlefield. You know, you could tell where your unit was. Um, you could stay aligned, where you're moving, all that stuff by watching that flag. So the enemy would always try to shoot the flag bearer down to to sow confusion. And so, you know, people who are carrying flags or capturing flags, uh, you know, uh, they're often uh, Medal of Honor recipients for going to, to extraordinary lengths under incredibly terrible circumstances. Um, and you know, anytime I ever see a Medal of Honor on display at a museum or you know at a battlefield i stop and i read the story of the person who had earned that because you know they're all so inspiring and you think about you know that's literally someone who put his or her life on the line uh, for us as americans you know and and you know it's a way for me to respect what they did for me is to just you know take in their story for a second hmm. any stories that uh are maybe some of your favorites Oh gosh, um, there are so many, and it's funny. I I've got a five year old son, and I took him up to the Marine Corps Museum in Quantico, which from where I live is about a half an hour up the road, and uh, so it's you know it certainly touches on Civil War history, but the Marine Corps history is is so much more diverse and um, just crazy stuff. And they'd be like, "Well, this guy won this Medal of Honor, or this guy uh, was awarded them." And then that's I should correct that. They don't win the Medal of Honor; they earn the Medal of Honor because right. it's not a contest, you know. Um, and so to try to impart upon uh, my five-year-old son, like, you know, here's what this person had to do in order to, uh, you know, earn earn this medal, you know, and it's just uh, pretty awe-inspiring. Um, you know, and I can't think of a specific story off the top of my head only because you have put me on the spot. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, that that responsibility to stop and look and share and and uh, cultivate that respect in my son is, is, I think, really important. Let's talk about the Civil War for a minute. What is What was life like for a Civil War soldier? I know that I've heard stories of some very young men, you know, who might not even be considered a man today based on his age, but who did some pretty brave things. What was life like for a young man in that time period? Yeah, it's, um, Oh yeah. I'm going to come back to your question, but suddenly I remember the tale of Orion Howe, who's a 13 year old drummer boy out at Vicksburg. And he's asked to send a message to the front and he like goes through, um, uh, he's under fire and he runs out and delivers the message and he's under fire coming back. And it was just such an incredible act of heroism that uh, William T. Sherman uh, recommended him for uh, a medal of honor. And, and so he's the youngest recipient of the medal of honor. And, he got um, recommended for the Naval Academy. He was too young eventually to go to uh, when it was time to go. Um, he was a year too young to go to West Point. So he went to the Naval Academy instead. Uh, I think he washed out and became a dentist, but um, you know, it was a, um, a fantastic tale of uh, battlefield heroism. So to go back to your question, um, what was it like to be a civil war soldier? So first of all, particularly at the beginning of the war, uh, you know, there was that big rush for people to like, let's go sign up. And, um, you know, I, I hope the war is not over before we have the chance to get there and see some action and be a part of it. Uh, for a lot of these guys, it was life's big, grand adventure. Um, you know, it was so romantic. And for most Americans, like, they have never been beyond 30 miles past their house, you know, uh, like where you could ride on a horse. And so this idea of this war far off on the, you know, way away in these faraway lands was like just Virginia. incredible. Yeah, like, ooh, <laughs> you know, Mississippi, oh, you know, and um, 
And so it was, it was really something they were eager to go take part in because they were like, I'll never have this kind of chance for adventure in my life again. Then they get there and they find out at first, it's a lot of um, marching around and drill and, you know, the, the discipline of an army that is trying to learn how to be an army. So there's still a lot of confusion about what that's all about. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the other thing is disease really sets in because these country boys that are out living, you know, far away out in the middle of nowhere, finally get together with a whole bunch of other people for the first time in their lives. Cause you know, most of them never left the farm. And uh, so, so disease runs rampant um, uh, for every one person killed in the battlefield, two died of disease, uh, particularly mm-hmm. early in the war. Cause they'd never been exposed to those diseases. So when smallpox rips through or scarlet fever rips through, nobody has any immunity built up to it. Um, they don't know anything about germ theory. So hygiene creates problems. Dysentery is terrible. Um, and I, you really I, like, what a miserable way to die of dysentery. Like you're pooping yourself to death, literally. Yeah. And it's just terrible. And then, and they don't realize it just if you don't poop or pee above your water supply and you do it downstream makes all the difference nobody knew um and so just the whole process of learning and figuring out what that was like and so you know uh, imagine the luster and rom- romanticism um really falls off the rose petal when you see your tent mate dying of dysentery. Um, and then when, once they actually get out into the battlefield and they understand like, this is for real and this is terrifying and people are dying and it's not just some faraway abstract concept. It's up close and personal and in your face. But then the flip side of that is like, you know, you and all your buddies from your hometown signed up together and you're marching literally shoulder to shoulder into battle. And you might be scared to death, but you're not going to go run away because you're there for your buddies, you know, and, and you don't want your buddies going home and saying, Hey, Chris ran, um, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so there's that factor too, but it's like, you know, these are the guys I grew up with. These are my friends. I'm not going to give up on them. And so you just have this everyday kind of courage that sends these men into these terrible fights because they're doing it for each other. They're there for each other. And to me, you know, that, that might be the peak of manliness. If we're talking about that in the context of the war is like, you're doing it for your buddies, you know, mm-hmm. that brotherhood. Yeah. yeah well, and word. when you talk to soldiers today, even, you know, who come back from Iraq or Afghanistan and, you know, when they're seeing battle, that's a lot of the thing that fuels them even today is, you know, they're fighting next to this guy they've been with since basic training. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's something I can't speak to. I, I haven't served. I was fortunate to grow up in a generation that uh, is the first generation that didn't all go off to war together. My generation didn't have to go do that. And it was an all volunteer army. And, you know, we had the Iraq war on TV, you know, that was the closest that we came. So I, I can't speak to that from a first person point of view, but having spent most of my professional life studying soldiers and writing about them and sharing their stories, um, I feel like I've got a good appreciation for it. Maybe not an understanding you know the the kind of understanding you would only have by experiencing it but i think i've got an appreciation for it in a way that maybe a lot of people don't um you know it's pretty common today when you see a veteran and you say hey thank you for your service and it seems like the polite thing to do um having written so much about what these men go through in the crucible i absolutely mean it when i say Mm -hmm. thank you for your service because uh, I know what soldiers have had to go through, and uh, I am deeply grateful that they've been willing to put themselves out there like that for us. So one of the things with the Civil War that I think our country sometimes struggles with is, be, you know, it's north and south. So, you know, there's the story that it's brother against brother, you know, and we, the the north won the war, you know, the union prevailed. And some of the reasons that motivated the war were not good reasons. And we look back on them in hindsight and we, it's hard to side with the South, you know what I mean? Because we don't support slavery. We don't support racism. We don't support these things. Um, But it, I think it's important for us to understand sometimes that even the men of the Confederacy, many of them were fighting for, you know, they they may have been fighting a war on a side that was on the wrong side of history. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think there may have been, bravery and courage and heroism from their perspective as well. 
That's a, that's a great point. And it's really important to make that distinction between why do governments go to war and why does an individual soldier go to fight? And those are two different things. And uh, it, it does get a little frustrating for me when, you know, there are still people I talk to who are like, oh, the war wasn't about slavery. It absolutely 100% was. Um, historian James McPherson said there were many causes of the Civil War and they were all slavery. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because anything you can come up with, it all comes back to that. And then there'll be people who say, like, well, yeah, except my great 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 grandfather didn't own slaves. And then, then again, it might be 100% true. And so on a personal level, it's not maybe connected to slavery, but but that person still benefited from a slave economy and a free workforce that sustained other parts of the economy. And, and again, probably, you know, nothing any of those individual soldiers may be thinking about, but it is all still intrinsically tied. And that said, um, you know, a lot of soldiers in the South signed up because the North invaded, you know, and so it's like, I'm, I'm going to go sign up because, you know, my hometown's at risk or, you know, my, my farm is going to be at risk or, you know, I mean, and so it's a very personal sort of thing in that regard. Uh, and that's one thing that, you know, you and I are both Northerners and um, people in the North don't understand how personal it is because like there are people in the South that are still living on a farm that their great, great, great grandfather owned, you know, and like, and, and there is blood on that ground from a battle or, you know, if it, at the very least there's, there's blood and sweat from working the plows or, you know, whatever that case might be. So people are tied to the land down here where a lot of that action took place. And so it's just got a different perspective that I think a lot of Northerners don't understand because they're um, not tied to the ground that way. And then, then of course, you think about like all the people who came in as immigrants in the 1870s and 1880s, and like they have no connection to the Civil War whatsoever and uh, or or the other different waves of of immigrants that have come in. And so like, you know, they don't have that sort of connection to the ground that a lot of people in the South have either because they don't have any connection to the star. Because I remember hearing somewhere, and you might know more about this, that um, kind of in that reparation period after the war as they were trying to, you know, repair the union because they had to put it back together with people that had just been fighting, um, you know, that they made it a point to honor, you know, the Confederate soldiers rather than to treat them, you know, as enemy soldiers, you know, it's like, look, you are a veteran. And, and I think that's actually kind of a, you know, a pretty big, peace offering so to speak you know i think that's a pretty cool thing sure there's and you talk about that that shared valor on the battlefield and that's an experience that veterans north and south could understand because they had been through the crucible together uh you know maybe on opposite sides but it was still the, a shared experience and uh, there's been actually some really interesting scholarship about that over the past 15 or 20 years where this notion of reconciliation, as they call it, um, where the veterans came together and really did a lot to help the healing between the North and South. And that was a really significant thing. Um, David Blight is a scholar who, who really did some groundbreaking work on that in a book called Race and Reunion. The, the downside to that is it often happened at the expense of remembering black people um, because that was still a sore spot and Jim Crow South was on the rise. And, you know, we can conveniently forget about that if we just think about the shared battlefield valor. And so it, it literally whitewashes part of that history away and makes it easier for the South to engage in black crowism. So that, re, the, and, and, and that's not to say the, the reunification wasn't important because it absolutely was, mm-hmm. um, but it was imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, we can definitely have that conversation in the way that we have, we can look at the fact that Jim Jones from Arkansas, who suited up in, in gray and went to the battlefield to protect his family's farm, you know, is worthy of honor. At the same time, we can also say owning slaves is bad. And we did a horrendous thing as a nation by allowing it to happen and the racism that continued afterwards. And, and it still happens today. Sometimes too, it's it's horrible and evil. I think that we're in this crazy world where people just have a hard time, like recognizing that the line between, you know, it's not just like a straight line between, Hey, America is all good or Hey, America's evil. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. Right. 
And, you know, and it's a frustrating thing for me as someone who writes about history, because it is all shades of gray, you know, and people really like their black and white world and they like it one way or the other. And, you know, even today when, when you hear people talk about American history and it's either got to be like all hundred percent red, white, and blue star spangled banner, or it's got to be like, Oh, look how awful we were to these different groups of people. And both of those visions are true. That's the thing. It's not one or the other. It's both. You know, <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong. You yeah, know, yeah. and and I think that we do ourselves an injustice by ref- by insisting that it fit in one category or the other. Because if we talk about all that distance between them, um, there's a lot of common ground. There's a lot of opportunity for understanding. There's a lot of opportunity for empathy. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that it's so much more constructive to be able to talk about that stuff rather than point your finger and, and blah, 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 you know. Yeah. Every, everybody likes to do that today, though. <laughs> It's it's like a cottage industry, you know, this fabricated yes. outrage <laughs> about every. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist at heart. So I think that somebody somewhere is conducting, you know, <laughs> I don't know whether it's true. Somebody's conducting and they're like, OK, so now we're going to get the people mad about abortion. OK. And that starts to fizzle out. OK, Ukraine. Here we go. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and and then, you know, the the reasonable people say josh but who are they like i don't know (laughs) but you know you you can just see stuff play out and you say something doesn't something could be happening here i don't know so well and you know it's always frustrating for me you know you're a former member of the media i'm a former member of the media like we know a lot of people who work in the business they're all good people like there's no evil mastermind sitting in the control booth at wesb in bradford who's like now i'm going to you know like they're all good people so when people you know when when critics say like oh the media blah blah well like i was the media once and you know i'm i wasn't up to nefarious deeds you know? <laughs> well i i think especially in small towns right where you know you're going to have on your editorial staff a liberal and a conservative and a libertarian and somebody who just doesn't care you know yeah, yeah right. and you know and and you're going to have four people and probably most of them are going to be lean conservative in that small town you know so your your mix is going to be a little different but when you go in a lot of the world you see those people that are in the media all tend to side one way. And then you can start to see, all right, here we go. We're starting to see, you know, I I was listening to some national media. I'll say it. I was listening to NPR and I think I only listened to NPR and I love NPR. Mm -hmm. I love the, um, the way that the media is created. I love that it's intelligently edited. I love the way they use their sound bites, the way they, you know, the, the format, right. The format is what I love. What I hate is that I can sit there and I can be like, all right, as a guy who worked as an editor at a newspaper and as a news director at a small town radio station, you know, and worked in all these different places, I know how story selection matters, you know, and how you can taint the picture, you know, and when you switch from, from news content to editorial content, and the only person that knows that there was a difference is the person who was in the media, yeah, <laughs> you right, know? Right. And, and so it starts influencing people's opinions. And so I'll sit there and I'll get mad and all that's, I love listening to it just to get mad now. So <laughs> it's yeah, my that, outlet. That agenda setting is, uh, and, but you talk about like, you know, people kind of in the same small town thinking, generally thinking in the same way. And I'll, I'll bring that back to the civil war. We have all these people from all these small towns and suddenly they're thrown together in an army of 120,000 guys from all across the country and they realize just how similar and how different they really are and you know what does it mean to be from the north versus what does it mean to be from the south and you know are there distinctions between the two beyond slavery that are any different than someone who is from down east maine versus someone who is uh, from minnesota or from someone who is from new york city like those are pretty <laughs> different life experiences just as someone who might be from richmond virginia is is having a much different experience than someone who's coming from like the 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 black belt in alabama you know and so i imagine that there's also even with those things a lot of things in common especially even when you you know, you find out how much you have in common, even with your enemy, oh, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, this is still somebody who grew up in the, you know, on, on the right hand side of the country. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. on the, the East Coast, you know, and there's things that we do have in common that would make I think that would make that war in particular very difficult. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, you see stories all the time of soldiers like, you know, they're trying to kill each other one minute and then someone's injured or the fight stops or whatever. And then they stop being soldiers and, and start turning into human beings and they administer acts of mercy and compassion to each other, you know, and it's like, you know, I'm, if I'm not going to try to kill this guy, uh, well, I'm going to try to save him. You know, and there's a lot of that, you know, one of the, I think one of the fascinating stories uh, and a horrific story from the battle of the wilderness where the woods catch on fire in in several different places in the middle of the battle. It's in May of 1864 and soldiers on both sides just stop fighting and go help the wounded, regardless of whose side they're on, because nobody wants to get burned up in the flames. And, you know, the thought of burning to death is so horrific to these soldiers that they, they, they stop fighting so that they can save wounded men from suffering that terrible fate, you know? And so suddenly, you know, humanity starts shining through and, uh, you know, you have those common experiences and suddenly it's a lot easier to understand each other as people or treat each other as people. Um, I'm a big fan of travel for that very reason. Like you get out and you see how other people live and you start being, you know, a, a little more sympathetic to the conditions that people are in, in different places and how they act and how they think and what they have to go through. And their lives are just as hard as mine or yours, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I what, travel is the great equalizer. I've heard it said, you know, you, you go out and you see that people live different or, or hang out and spend some time with somebody that's different than you or thinks different than you. And yeah, it's, it's a valuable, a valuable piece of life advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And uh you know, and, and you get out of your silos and you start communicating, you start talking, you start understanding, you start empathizing. And that breaks down all those things that particularly today just have us so distraught and tensed up. And I think that was maybe one of the, the important things about the Civil War is because of the, you have this big mixture of people from all over the country in these different armies. Um, you know, people start thinking of the country as a country, not as a collection of individual states. And it's been, you know, kind of one of the, the cliches is, you know, before the war, we used to say the United States are because it was a collection of states. And then afterwards, we'd say the United States is because it was a single country. And, uh, you know, I just think coming together like that really helped people come together. Hmm. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, my conservative leaning is like i'm not saying that i am pro a state's right to own slaves right but right i like the concept of states rights you know like that's embedded in our constitution but um so so like for me like i love the fact that you know pennsylvania can say it's legal to have a concealed carry you know and then another state could say well you know what i don't I mean, I don't necessarily like that, but I get it. Like they could say, we're going to have a different set of rules for how a person can handle their weapons, you know, and, or a different set of rules as to, you know, what the, uh, the legal age is to, to buy a car, you know, I mean, you know, some States, the kids can drive at 15. Like, that's a cool thing, you know, where, where, yeah, it's up to the people so that you can make laws that work for the people around you. That's a cool concept, but um, but one of the one of the ironies of that is is that you know people always would you know and I, I would use the Civil War times as an example of this they would say like states' rights because they didn't like the idea of a concentrated centralized government mm-hmm. but a state government can be just as tyrannical as a centralized federal government right and so you know there's there's a two edged sword that I think some people conveniently overlook um, yeah. and that can be problematic too. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we see that we talked about the difference between the, you know, New York city versus, you know, a, a small town in, in Arkansas or whatever, you know, there, I, I, you know, you look at the election maps and you see how people vote and we really don't have red States and blue States. You have red counties and blue cities. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's blue cities and then everything else is red, you know? Yeah. And, and that's because it's just, I think that, people generally from smaller towns think differently and they have different things that they value. And, and that's not a bad thing. I think that the challenge is how do we work together to make things 
you know, yeah. I know we didn't we didn't mean to get into all the politics, yeah, but yeah. it we I think that when we think about the Civil War, it, it's relevant today, you know. Oh, well, and I think that if if more people had done more talking before the war instead of letting themselves get all lathered up into a tizzy, um, you know, perhaps the war wouldn't have come. You know, and there are some people who would argue that it was inevitable by 1850, you know, and the 50s were just the 1850s were just a decade of escalation toward the inevitable. Um, and I'd like to think that that wasn't inevitable because that gives me hope for these days where things seem so partisan and divided. And if there's room for conversation and de-escalation, then we don't have to send ourselves toward some other sort of conflict that historians in the future might say like, Oh, that was inevitable. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to send our 13 year olds off to play the drums on the battlefield yeah because so. like it's a terrible thing you know like i've got a you know five-year-old i've got a 22 year old and a 28 year old as well and i'm like to think that like i would never want to have to send them off to the battlefield you know i i would rather go in their stead nobody wants 52 year old you know overweight chris mikowski going <laughs> to, into the army but uh you know i would rather do it than have to send my kids yeah so this is uh as we're talking about the civil war, something I just think about all the time, because, you know, you go to war today and we have really advanced weaponry, you know, I mean, we can go to war and never even leave our country. We can send drones out and use satellite mapping to find the person and don't even have to leave anywhere to go do that, you know, but things were a little more, uh, a little less precise back then. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's funny because technology had a huge leap, before the war, uh, before the Civil War, too. And uh, it took a while for the tactics to catch up to that because, uh, you know, they would employ in what were known as Napoleonic tactics, where you massed your soldiers together in a big group and you marched them forward and you tried to use a lot of firepower from being massed together. And that's because the guns didn't have rifling. It was, they were smoothbore guns. And so you'd shoot and the bullet as it's coming out of the barrel would bounce around. And so they're terribly inaccurate. So really, your only chance of hitting something is if you get a whole bunch of guys together and you all fire at once, and then someone's going to hit something. But you didn't have a lot of range. And so the idea was that you tried to kind of, uh, you know, advance, fire, and get close enough where you can start using the bayonet. Well, when rifling is invented, that puts a spiral on the inside of a barrel. And so it spins the bullet and it makes it far more accurate and you've got a farther range. So then when, you know, you're massed together, Certainly, you generate a lot of firepower, but you become a much easier target. Whereas before, if you were masked together and people are shooting at you, like their guns aren't any more accurate than you are. So, you know, chances are they're not going to hit anything either. So being together in a big cluster, not such a big deal. But suddenly when the range and the accuracy improve and you're together as a big group, you're a huge target. And it took them like two and a half years to figure out how to fight the war with against that sort of technology uh, and it was devastating where you've got units that are just suffering you know a regiment starts with a thousand guys and by the end of the war they're down to like 250 and it's terrible you know bloodshed it's a much more brutal way to to go now um were they still using like muskets and single shot or were they using cartridges or was it a combination of both combination of both particularly at the um beginning of the war um, you know, everyone's in some respects bringing their own guns with them at times, and then uh, particularly in the South. And then uh, as the things become more standardized, the union's industrial capacity kicks in and they're able to just start cranking stuff out. And what I think a really important innovation is uh, having the same ammunition for everybody, um, which doesn't seem like a big deal. It seems like, well, of course, but when you've got people with all sorts of different rifles, how do you supply a regiment when you've got five or six different styles of firearms? That means you've got to have five or six different styles of ammunition and how, you know, and so if everybody's got the same thing, you can borrow from each other. You can pick stuff up off the battlefield. Uh, your weapon doesn't become obsolete the minute you run out of bullets. Um, and so that became, I think, a really huge deal, um, you know, particularly for the North as the fight went on. And the South caught up to that. You see more standardization for them. But even in 1863, when Stonewall Jackson gets shot accidentally by his own men at Chancellorsville, he gets shot by a smoothbore rifle. 
that someone's still using, you know, two years into the war. Stonewall Jackson, interesting character, right? Fantastic. I'm a huge Stonewall Jackson fanboy. Uh, big man crush on him. Um, he's no one I would want to hang out with. I mean, he was super <laughs> severe, um, super de duper, uh, religious. Uh, and I don't have anything against that, but I mean, just, you know, he, he didn't drink, he didn't swear, he didn't cuss. I don't think he had fun. Um, and he was one of those guys that you obeyed the letter of the order or you were under arrest. Um, mm-hmm. But he's just fascinating and quirky. He would suck on lemons. Uh, he was a terrible hypochondriac in really interesting ways. Um, for as severe a disciplinarian as he was, he just was a fantastic um, family man. Um, you know, all he wanted his whole life, he was orphaned at a young age. All he wanted was to be a dad. And uh, you know, just so, so all these really interesting juxtapositions about him. I just find him endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and he, I, he's on my list for the... Uh, testicular fortitude series definitely uh, okay explore some of that because I, I, yeah he's a fascinating character and and again an amazing military leader like that discipline you know like you said would have been harsh to hang out with but it that's why he was able to do what he did yeah yeah, yeah. so uh and it's uh you know he would just uh achieve all these things that literally made him the most famous confederate in the world you know at the peak of his pride, even more so than robert e lee and yeah. um uh, but you know, he also had some interesting flaws and, uh, people mythologize him. They mythologize Lee. And I find it much more interesting to look at him as human beings rather than as marble figures, because I think we do him uh, any historical figure. I think we do him a disservice by mythologizing them and looking at them as flawless marble figures. Uh, they're so much more interesting as people. Yeah. I can think about like even Robert E. Lee has a, the biggest flaw, obviously, is that he picked the wrong team. Um, <laughs> and he could have literally, he could have been the commander of all Union yeah, armies and he exactly. turned the gig down. Exactly. But he, you know, there were things that he has written. Like if you, if you read the words that he's written, there's some, there's nobility there. That is, you know, some, some pretty cool things that, that he said and some pretty cool things he did. Again, you know, I don't necessarily appreciate the side he picked or the 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 things they were fighting for but yeah like i i think that being able to kind of look at a guy who the, you know he's he's probably the the most hated guy in parts of the country you know but and and he his team lost for a reason right yeah, but yeah. there's some good stuff there that that we can pick out and say what can we learn from him you know and you know and that's such an important insight josh and i'm glad you mentioned that because you know, I think one of the biggest challenges these days is what we call presentism, where we apply present values to people of the past and then get mad at them for not living up to our values. And they had their own values and we have to understand them in the context of their own time and place. And we don't have to agree with their values. Um, but if we really want to understand and learn, uh, then we have to approach those people with empathy, not with judgment. And, you know, then we can find out, as you say, like there's something we can learn from all those people. Um, let me use Dan Sickles as an example, because he's a northerner. And so he might seem like he's less radioactive than a Robert E. Lee sure. is these days. But Dan Sickles, he was a political general from New York City um, at the Battle of Gettysburg. He lost his right leg when an artillery shell came in and, and clipped it off. And um his fellow generals didn't like him because he was not part of the West Point Club. Um, he was a bit conniving. You know, if you had to make a decision, he'd hold his finger up and see which way the wind was blowing. Um, he's the first person to ever get off on a murder charge using the temporary insanity defense. He actually gunned down the son of Francis Scott Key, who was having an affair with Sickles' wife. Um, even though Sickles was also having affairs at the time, it wasn't you know what was good for the goose wasn't good for the gander, I guess. So like there, so like just a really complicated, um, complex individual. He um, after uh, after Gettysburg, um, he'll he'll run for Congress after the war based on the platform that he wants to make Gettysburg a national military park. And then he ends up um, embezzling money that is supposed to be set aside for a monument to him. Uh, yeah. So like just all, you know, and, and so like, there's some cool stuff. There's some crazy stuff. There's just some downright unsavory stuff. And 
look at all of it and see what we can take away from that, you know? And I think every character from the Civil War is the same way. Yeah. I've been looking for you all the place here. Oh, look, speaking of manliness, here's my here little partner here, uh, Maxwell James, who's just uh, wandered into the frame here. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm Maxwell. How are you, man? Good. Good. <laughs> I love it. I, uh, my wife is off at a meeting tonight. And so I was like, oh, well, I've got this podcast interview to do. But then I thought, you know, like if we're going to talk about manliness, you know, we're going to come right down to it. It means being there for your kids, I think. I agree. And, you know, nothing's more important. And uh, so I own this part of my life right on my sleeve. I wear it right up front. Being a dad is uh, the single most important part of my whole life. You know? yeah. and, uh, That's awesome. I love it. You've got older kids too. Do you have grandkids yet? I do. I have a two-year-old granddaughter. So Maxwell is three years older than his niece and he loves being an uncle. That's kind of a fun, interesting cool. dynamic. And yeah. uh, he's really close with his two older siblings. So that's, that's a lot of fun too. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I, uh, my oldest, uh, well, I had a set of twins and one of them has uh, given me a beautiful grandbaby and then oh, and there's another one on the way, which I can say, because I'm not supposed to say this to everybody and announce this yet, because it's still pretty early on, but this is going to air later, so I can say <laughs> it then. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. So, um, and I've still got one at home right now, so okay. she's she's 17, and and uh, uh, yeah, I agree, man. Dude, being a dad is awesome. Being a grandpa is even better. Yeah, well, yeah, because then you can give them back. Everyone makes exactly. that joke, but it's so true. You know, it's, it's awesome because it's true. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. So tell me, uh, since we're kind of having that part of the conversation as we're transitioning a little bit, tell me, what do you think it means to be a man? Taking ownership for the, your responsibility to the people around you, I think. Um and I think that that means attending to them with uh, respect and listening. And there's certainly that lizard brain caveman part of me that's like, you know, must provide food, you know, must provide, you know, like that's part of it too. Um, and I know that's maybe the stereotypical part of it, but to me, that's very meaningful that um, that I'm contributing, I'm participating, I'm active and it's very important for my wife and I to both think that we're partners in that. It's not just me being the man providing, but that I'm contributing and, and she is too. And we really look at what we do as a partnership and, and really working at that partnership. You know, you choose every day to wake up and make that relationship work and you, you know, you work at it and you know, on the good days it's effortless and on the less good days, it's still rewarding. Um, and you know, never go to bed angry. That's how I think a really put rule. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, so to me, that's, that's all that. And then being a good example to my kids and providing for them in, in a way that doesn't spoil them, but makes them feel valued and, and appreciated and loved and surprised. And, you know, um, I always have to remember I'm the dad, which means I've got to be a parent, not a friend, but I still hope that they look at me as a friend. Um, but I don't ever want to abdicate that parental responsibility too. You know, I think that's important. Yeah. So, so let's say uh, we can suspend the laws of physics and the laws of time, and you can have an opportunity to have a conversation with 10 year old Chris Mikowski. Yeah. What are you going to tell him? Uh, keep having fun. I'm going to reassure him that things are going to turn out okay. Uh, when I was 10, life was great. I lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania. My childhood smelled of chocolate. It was wonderful. It was idyllic. And, and then life took a hard turn for my family. And it was pretty tumultuous for a lot of my growing up. And uh, there were times it was really scary and nerve-wracking. Uh, so I tell my 10-year-old my self, it'll be okay. you know. And those things will make you stronger and you'll get through it and you'll find people at the other end that love you and that you'll be able to love and uh, you won't be broken and you won't be scared. And, you know, you're going to have a lot of fun. The last of the three questions that I really like to ask my guests, what's your best advice for the men listening today? And we've had a lot of really good advice throughout, I think, but uh, what do you think is the best advice you've got for our listeners? 
Um, That's a great question. And I'll be thinking about that question long after we're done. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I think one of the stereotypes about manliness is like, we want to be respected. I am man, respect me. Um, I think it's important to show the kind of respect you want to be shown. Show the kind of empathy you want people to show to you. Um, Offer the sort of patience that you wish people had toward you. And uh, understand, you know, Plato had this great line. He said, um, everyone's living a tough life. You know, and they, they they might not show it. Everyone is living a tough life. And uh, so I think if you just approach everybody with respect and patience and empathy, um, you'll the universe will bring those things back to you, too. Yeah, I think that's good advice, my friend. So if people want to, after talking with you and seeing how awesome you are, <laughs> they, let's say they want to read your books. They want to connect with you. Sure. Uh, where can they find what you're doing? So I'm part of a group of historians that collectively are called Emerging Civil War. Um, and we get that name because it's uh, we started out a lot of emerging voices, emerging perspectives. So you can find us online, emergingcivilwar.com. We've got a blog that's free content every day from about 30 different historians who are contributing to that conversation. Um, we've got, you know, I've got books, a bunch of my colleagues have books. We've got a podcast, we've got an annual symposium speakers bureau, and we're out really just trying to spread the gospel of the civil war and let people stay connected to what we see as America's defining event. So people can find us at emergingcivilwar.com and we'd love to have them join our online community. Awesome. Chris, I am looking forward to digging into some of that content myself and, and, uh, I think you've given me a lot of stuff to think about and, and uh, I hope our listeners can, can, can reciprocate as well. And they can get in there and guys, if you like, like what you see, like the, the stuff will be in the show notes. So let's, let's give uh, Chris some support. So thanks so much, Josh. And, and again, I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning. Um, congratulations to you and all the work that you're doing and the role model that you continue to serve as. Uh, you know, it's neat thinking back to fresh-faced young Josh behind the microphone at the radio station and, and seeing where you've come and what you've done. And uh, just, you know, mad respect for you, brother. Thanks. Like I said, same respect for you. It's awesome to see you live in the dream and and uh, keep keep uh, taking care of that kiddo. It's awesome. <laughs> we'll, we'll do. Take care of yourself. And uh, thanks so much for having me. Chris, thank you so much for appearing here on the Mainly Hidden Man cast. Guys, if you want to check out more of the work that Chris is doing at Emerging Civil War, please check out the show notes. You can click it and you can link straight through to the website there and see all the articles he's written and some of the videos he's made and, and check out the books he's written as well. So please let's support Chris. Thank you again, man, for being on the show. Listen, guys, if you appreciate what we're doing here at Manlyhood and you want to be a part of it and you want to grow with us, we've got the Manlyhood Man Cave. It's a free Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in Manlyhood Man Cave, answer a few questions. We'll approve you. If, if you're a man, we'll approve you. Then introduce yourself to the group. We can't wait to have you in there. And it's a great place. Uh, Lots of great conversations, and uh, it's really good to see guys connect and starting to form some brotherhood. So, yeah, we'd love to have you in the Manlyhood Man Cave. Listen, guys, thank you again for listening today. I love you. I care about you. And I'll see you next time. If you want to be a better man, check out our website, manlyhood.com, for blogs, videos, and more from our Manlyhood team. Men, you can also join our private Facebook group, Manlyhood Man Cave, where you can meet up with a band of brothers who will challenge you and help you on your journey of manhood. This episode is produced by Hatcher Media for Manlyhood.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you're listening to the show. Tune in again for more of the Manlyhood Mancast.